So, uh, what do you think about the people around you this morning? Now, I don't just mean the people you came with, right? What do you think about the ones sitting in front of you? The ones sitting behind you, the ones sitting way over there. Now, I don't want you to, to look at them because that would just be awkward, okay? <laughs> what do you think of them? If you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1 for the last time. Now, I say that because for anyone who is visiting or anyone who's new to Windsor, this is our sixth week of looking at exactly the same set of verses, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 through to 9. Now, we don't do this very often. We don't, we don't spend so much time on one text. But the reason that we have parked here for now six weeks is because we believe that it contains instructions to Christians that are dynamic and that are life-altering. So normally we do, and I would say at this stage, please stand for the public reading of God's word, but you're fed up standing. I can sense it, okay? I sensed it earlier. It's okay. I got the message. So we're going to stay seated, okay, uh, as, as we listen to God's word again. This is the sixth time reading it. It's on the screen, but if you're following it, follow it with me. His, that's God's divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life, for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them, whoever does not have them, is short-sighted and blind forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So Peter gives us seven things that we are to add to our faith. Now remember, and I've stressed this every week, these are not seven things we add to find faith. Faith is a God-given gift. We are saved by grace through faith and that faith is a gift of God. We do nothing to earn faith. We do nothing to obtain faith. We have done nothing to deserve faith. Peter here is writing to Christians. He's writing to people of faith. People who, according to verse 3, and Sarah referenced this at the start. It was the first slide on the screen. People who have everything. God has given you everything you need to live this life, everything. No Christian here this morning can say, I don't have what it takes. God, by his power, has given you everything you need to live this life. But then Peter urges us to do something in order to not add, have faith, but in order to grow in our faith, to live the life. He says, add seven things. He says, I want you to make every effort to add seven things. And he says, see if these seven things are present, but not just present, if they are increasing in your life, then according to verse eight, they will keep you from being unfruitful and unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus. In other words, if you want to know Jesus better, 
If we want to know Jesus better, which I know is the heart of so many people here, then here's how. Here's how you know Jesus better. You make every effort to add to your faith. You play your part. You roll your sleeves up. You get stuck in. And here are the seven faith add-ons. Goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Now, for five weeks, we have explored the first five on that list. We've taken a week on each. I'm not going to summarize them. If you do want to listen back, they're available via the website and podcast. But today we're going to consider, as Sarah has said, we're going to consider the last two. Now, we're not considering the last two just because they sound or seem similar, although they do and they are. The reason we're considering the last two today is just because we are and a new series is starting next week and I've ran out of time, okay? So stick with me on it. But before we turn to brotherly affection and love, let me ask you a question. If you've been following this, I know there's a number of visitors here this morning, but if you've been following this with us, let me ask you a question. How are you getting on? How are you getting on? How have each of, let's say the first five, how have each and all of those been increasing in your life during the past six weeks? And what's the effort level been like? What's the effort level been like? You see, it's so important, isn't it, that we don't just hear God's word, but we've got to do it. We've got to do it. Okay, so here, let's look at number six on the list, brotherly affection, which is why I asked you, what do you think of the people around you this morning? The actual word that Peter uses here in the original text, it's it's Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. We all know that there's different words for love in the Bible that mean different things. So the love that comes next on the list, the seventh thing that we have to add on that is just translated love, that is agape love, and we'll come to that later. But here, number six, it's Philadelphia. It's brotherly love. It's the love that exists within the family of God. It's the love that we must have and should have for one another around us this morning, for the people sitting in front of you, for the people sitting behind you, for the people sitting way over there. This is the love we should have for our brothers and sisters. And that's the love that we've got to make every effort to add because let's be honest, it takes some effort, doesn't it, to love Christians? I mean, it does, particularly some of them. It takes some effort, and that's why I honestly believe Peter says, listen, you've got to make every effort to add this to your faith. Because in a sense, this doesn't come naturally. But we've got to do it. And we've got to do it for no other reason other than because Jesus said, you know something, this proves you belong to me. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. By what, Jesus? If you love one another. That's how a watching world is going to know who we are, who are going to know our true identity, who are going to know we belong to Jesus. It's by our love for one another. Philadelphia love, you see, is personal. Philadelphia love is practical. It's close. It's hands-on. It's face-to-face. Now, this word Philadelphia was common outside of the Bible at this time. It was used by the early Greeks to refer to biological love. It was to that special bond that existed between blood brothers, two siblings from the same father. The New Testament writers, they came along and in a sense, they took that word and they kind of flipped it inside out. 
It still means love between brothers, only people like Peter and John and Paul, they radically altered the definition of brother and sister. Because a brother or a sister now meant no longer a pure blood relative, but it now referred to a brother or sister in Christ, to a person who was now part of the family of God because of the blood of Christ. And this was, this was revolutionary. It meant that followers of Jesus were bound to each other as if they had the same father. Which is exactly what is right, what is true of us, because they do and they did. As Christians, we are taught, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are taught to pray, our Father, who art in heaven. And so Peter, etc., like Paul and, and John as well, in some senses, they don't just redefine brotherhood and sisterhood, they redefined fatherhood. They retained this root meaning of Philadelphia, love between those from the same father, but they added a whole new level of meaning to it by making it clear that all those who know and love God as father, you're now family, you're now brothers and sisters, and you must love one another as if you were real brothers and sisters. You see, if we love the Father, then we must and we should love what the Father loves. And more than anything else, what the Father loves are his children, his bro our brothers and sisters. Now, I know not all of them are lovable. And as you look in front of you and as you look behind you and you look at, I mean, some people are obnoxious, aren't they? Some are boring. Some are downright annoying. Some have frustrating habits. Some I don't want to talk to. Some I'd rather talk about. Some I want to avoid. Some I want to put in their place. But you know something? You're my brothers and sisters. You're children of the same father. And as the apostle John says, and this is so annoying, but as the Apostle John says, it's annoying and it's sobering, he says this, anyone who says he loves God and doesn't love his brother is a liar. I mean, that's strong. You see, I cannot claim, I cannot stand up here this morning and claim to love God and sing about my love for God if I refuse to love other Christians. It, it, it just doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. Yes, I may struggle to do it. I may need to make every effort to do it. But you see, if I harbor or entertain any other feelings toward another brother or sister in Christ, which is not grounded in love, and if I don't make an effort to sort it out, if it is not how I feel about that other person, then it questions the integrity and the authenticity of my faith. Anyone who says he loves God, but doesn't love his brother, you're a liar, says John. It's annoying. You see, to love God is to love what God loves, and God loves the person sitting in front of you and the person behind you and the person way over there. Make every effort, just make every effort to add brotherly affection. Let me give you four expressions of this quality, of this virtue that may help you in your addition. Uh, I've said before during the series that I found Mark Buchanan, who's, who's my favorite author, who I found Mark Buchanan's book on this text incredibly helpful. And here's four expressions of Philadelphia that he identifies. The first is equality. You see, with brothers, no one has a status above another. There, there should be and there, there ought not to be any favorites. The Apostle John, he, he, he makes it, or James makes this explicitly clear when he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, they must not show favoritism. 
just can't, just can't be. In the family of God, everyone's equal. We can't give access or privilege to someone at the expense of someone else. It shouldn't be like that. And James, in that text, he goes on to illustrate what he means by giving us the example of how, you know, sometimes we're prone to prioritize and show favoritism to those who are rich. And we kind of snub those or we take advantage of those who are poor. And James says, you know what? That's favoritism. And it's wrong. In fact, he goes on to say it's pure evil. But the point is, listen, don't favor some brothers and sisters over others. We're all equal here and brotherly affection, brotherly love expresses that. The second expression of brotherly love is unity. And this is huge because the issue or the scandal of disunity amongst Christians is tragic. It's not just tragic, I believe it is deeply unfruitful and incredibly unproductive, to use the language of Peter. See, in John 17, we read that landmark prayer of Jesus as he approaches the end of his earthly life. And in that prayer, he refers to and he addresses God as his father time and time again. And central to his prayer, central to his petitions is this, that just as he and the father are one, so those whom the father has adopted as his children, they should be one. And so Jesus prays, he says, my prayer, fathers, this is all of those, all of those who belong to you, father, may they be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. You know, Christian unity at its deepest and yet simplest is this. Jesus indwells you, Jesus indwells me. Jesus indwells you, Jesus indwells me. We have been joined to the Father through the work of Jesus and the presence of the Spirit. And so whatever makes us different, and there will be differences between us depending on denomination and all sorts of other things, but whatever else makes us different, Jesus unites us and must unite us. Whatever divides us cannot be possibly stronger than what brings us together. And what brings us together is Jesus. Brotherly love is expressed personally. It's expressed practically in unity. And if there is disunity between us and any other brother and sister in the Lord, then we need to start adding. We need to sort it out. We need to start adding and keep adding and continue to add brotherly love to our faith. Third expression is closeness. As brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a bond. There is a connection that transcends friendship. It goes deeper. It goes beyond friendship. Brotherly love implies a genuine depth of feeling and desire for closeness and for intimacy. Well, and I know language like this makes some people uncomfortable, but whenever the apostle Paul was writing to his family, to his brothers and sisters in Philippi, here's what he says to them. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, Stay true to the Lord, which is a great thing to pray for his family. Stay true to the Lord. I love you. And I long to see. That's language of the heart. That is a motive. And it expressed the closeness that comes from being part of the family. This is more than friendship. This goes beyond that. This is deeper than that. Some of you will remember that little chorus we used to sing. Haven't, haven't done so in a, in a while. But he, here are the lyrics. Let there be, how many people remember this wee chorus? Lots of it. Let there be love shared among us. Let there be love in our eyes. And then it goes on. Give us a fresh understanding of brotherly love that's real. Let there be love shared among us. Let there be love. Now, I, I, I don't like the tune, be honest, okay? We're going to sing it at the end, but I don't like the tune, okay? <laughs> Never liked the tune, but that's okay. We're going to sing it well anyway. But that line, see that line, let there be love in our eyes. It's always struck me. 
Let there be love in our eyes because it reminds us that brotherly love that is real, it's got to come from within. The eyes are a window to the soul. And if our, if our love for one another is genuine, if it comes from the heart, then it'll be seen in our eyes. It'll be seen in how we look at each other. It'll be seen in the way we see one another. We must not look through one another. We must not look past one another. We not, must not look over one another. We need to lock eyes. Let there be love. Let there be love in, in our eyes. Finally, not finally, there's another few points, but finally for now. Right? Finally, it's expressed in servanthood. And there, there's probably nowhere that captures this more vividly than, than Romans 12, that well-known chapter that, that talks about offering our bodies as living sacrifices. But as Paul in that chapter goes on to talk about the importance of being together and serving together in the body of Christ, he says this. He says, listen, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And how does that look? He says, honor one another above yourselves. And so to put this really simply, here's what brotherly love looks like. Here's what servanthood looks like in this context. It means you serve one another. It means you honor one another. It means you seek the good of one another. Brotherly love serves, honors, and seeks the good of others. So equality, unity, Closeness and servanthood. Is your love for the person sitting in front of you this morning expressed in those ways? Is it expressed in those tangible ways? And this is, and I don't want to get, this is serious. And the reason it's serious is because of something else John the Annoying One said on one occasion. He said this, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How do we know it? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love their brother or sister abides in death. You see, if, if we don't have, if we don't add, if we're not making every effort to add brotherly love to our faith, if it is not present, if it is not increasing in our lives, then I am not sure I can claim to be fully alive in Christ. Last one on the list. Love. Agape love. It's different from Philadelphia. Agape love is often described as unconditional love, and, and that's pretty accurate, and it's pretty amazing, because what this is calling us to do is simply this. Well, there's nothing simple about it. What this is calling us to do is to love like God. Agape love calls us to love like God. I came across this during the week as I prepared and I found it helpful in thinking the difference between Philadelphia and Agape. So Philadelphia is to love what God loves. Agape is to love as God loves. Or to put it another way, Philadelphia is to love whom God loves. Agape is to love in the way God loves. And that's going to take some effort. That's going to take some effort. You see, agape love is unconditional. It's not the if. If you do this, if you look like this, or because of this, I will. No, that, that's not. That's conditional love. Agape love is radically different. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on emotions. It is a determined act of the will that just starts from a place of saying, I will love. No ifs, no buts, no becauses. This is love in spite of, not because of. 
For God so loved the world that he gave. Not because, not for any reason, for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. That's unconditional love. Agape love is unprovoked love. It seeks those who never saw it coming. It seeks those who never had it coming, who never sought it out. It shows up unannounced, unexpected, undeserved. Agape love is affection without due cause. It's love for no reason. It's love beyond reason. God is an agape lover. God calls us to be agape lovers, to love as he loves. Brotherly love, Philadelphia love calls us to love one another. Agape love pushes us out beyond these walls to show unprovoked love to three different kinds of people. The least of these, the most of these, the worst of these. Losers, winners, enemies. The least of these. You know, those people that most of us tend to overlook. Those people that most of us, I, I, sidestep, even walk over. They'll do nothing. Those kind of people, the least of these do not. The least, the last, the lost. The least of these do nothing. Probably never will to earn my love, to deserve my love. But I must still choose to love. There's no reason to it. It's not because of anything. I choose to love. That's unprovoked. That's agape love. The most of these, those are the people who rarely get overlooked. They're the popular ones. They're the ones that are ahead of me. They're the ones who are above me. They're better than me. They're the ones who threaten me. They're the ones I'm jealous of. They're the ones that make me feel inferior. They make me feel secure. They're the ones everybody else likes. They're the ones that I find it hard to love. And therefore, I need to make every effort to add agape, unprovoked love to my faith. And finally, the worst of these, because you see, agape love calls us even further. It calls us to walk as Christ walked. And how do we walk as Christ walked when it comes to this whole area of agape love? Jesus says, do you know something? You love your enemy. You love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. The person that you have least reason to like, the person you have most reason to hate, you love them. And the reason you love them is because this is the way God loves. Because God demonstrated his unconditional, his unprovoked love for us in that he sent Jesus to die for us while we were what? While we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies. That's unprovoked love shown to the worst of these. And that's what I've got to add to my faith. And it takes some effort. I said at the start... I'm done. I said at the start that we have everything we need to live like this. God's power has given every single one of us everything we need to live like this. And I know it may have sounded heavy and hard this morning to love like this, to love our brothers and sisters and the people in front and behind and way over there. To love them with equality and with unity and with closeness and with servanthood. It's hard. And even harder still, it's hard to love others with unprovoked love. The least of these, the most of these, and the worst of these. God said, listen, I've given you everything you need to live like this, so now it's your turn. It's over to you. If you want to be fruitful and productive in your knowledge of Jesus, if you want to know Jesus better, then you need to make every effort to be adding these things to your faith. And so as I close, I ask us again, how are we doing? 
how will we do for me? Will, we just, will that be the last time we read this text? I hope not. I pray that we will go from here and we'll just keep adding goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly love and love, unprovoked love to our faith.